the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, and thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And of course, the appear there in the nakedness, uh, if you don't have it already, that's uh, Revel- uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Anoint thy eye with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come unto him and sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. And then it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We talked last week about... Uh, the contrast in, uh, between the church of the open door and the church of the closed door. And um, in the church of the open door, three ports of the world has come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In the church of the closed door, three quarters of the world goes communist. And uh, it's, a, it's a thing that uh, is very prevalent when you study it. We talked about the, the name Laodicea means justice of the people. And uh, we talked about the fact that it's neither cold nor hot. And that's where your evangelical crowd is right there. And uh, it's a time where the power of the Word of God is basically gone. And uh, we see it in the parallel of Israel that when Israel lost the Word of God, it was just a matter of time and they spiraled into apostasy. And so the church goes the same way. It's a time when the main emphasis is going to shift from the common man with a common Bible to an educated man with a college education and a degree in theology, uh, Christian education. And, the, uh, uh, you know, there, it's a time where the resources for reaching in, in the world are, are, are unbelievable. I mean, with TV, radio, worldwide communication, the jet age, computers, lasers, you know, and all the things that you have, um, and at least, at least 1,500 conservative Christian colleges uh, turning out Christians but a bushel load. And um, yet, uh, with all of this, uh, it still falls short of what they were doing in, in 100, 200, 300 A.D. in the book of Acts. It just goes to show you that uh, all the technology in the world doesn't, doesn't match the power of God when uh, God wants to get something done. And um, you'll notice that when we started church history and we looked at the first church, it was the church at Ephesus. That church is up here around uh, 33 A.D. up to about 200 A.D. In Revelation chapter 2, that church was commended for their intolerance. And he commended them for being intolerant of sin. He commended them for being intolerant of falsehoods. He commended them for finding out those which were liars and, and, and proving them as liars and dealing with the Word of God and keeping people accountable and honest. This church now, the Laodicean church, just kind of settles in and becomes part of the giant machinery that moves Christianity and makes up the world system of Christianity today. Has no power. It's, it's like Christianity today is like a man on life support system. His soul's gone. His spirit's gone. He's technically dead. 
you took him off the life support, he'd begin to decompose and be dead and, you know, and, and begin to rot. But as long as you keep pumping oxygen into those lungs and it keeps forcing the heart to work and keeps forcing the blood moving through his body, um, he's alive as far as the, uh, uh, but he's not worth anything. And that's the church today. The church is on a life support system. And you're going to find that this is where the devil replaces the God's church, first of all, with his church. And then he replaces God's Bible with his Bible. And he makes sure by the middle of the 20th century that, that God's Bible is hard to find. And today, uh, 50 years after that, or 60 years after that, it's almost impossible to find. And this is what uh, we talked about this Sunday when I showed you how that the Old Testament prophets uh, were right on the money with where Israel was and how it parallels to us today. One of them I gave you, and I want you to turn over to it, is look at Jeremiah chapter 23. It's uncanny how these things that were written back here before the captivity actually match up in such a great way. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 20. Now, here's a good prophecy for you uh, about the day and age that you and I are living in. Look at 23:20. The anger of the Lord shall not return until we have executed, until we have performed the thoughts of his heart. Now, look at that. Thoughts of his heart. That's your Bible. Now, watch this. In the latter days, you shall consider it. What's the it? The thoughts of his heart. See that thing? And you're going to consider it perfectly. In other words, he's telling you in the latter days, you're going to have something that you can consider the heart of the Lord and the thoughts of his heart and consider it perfectly. You know what that is? That's the Bible you got in your hand tonight. Now watch this. Look at verse 30. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. See that thing? That shows you that in Laodicean church, God gave you a book and the preachers steal it right out of your hands. Now that's the problem today. Uh, we talked about the controversy that, uh, uh, that the, the Lord had with the land. In Hosea, we talked about the, or Amos, we talked about the great famine. And not a famine of, of, of bread and water, but a famine of, of, of not the word of God, but a famine of the hearing of the word of God. The Word of God is here, and God gave you a book that in the latter days, the days that you and I are living in, that we could consider the thoughts of God's heart in a perfect way. But then somebody steals it from you, and that's what we're up against in the Laodicean church. This church has lost its Bible. When its absolute was taken, it had no moorings. It had no foundation. It had nothing, no point of reference in, in its being. It lost its power. And what has happened now, it's raised generation after generation after generation, and each generation have gotten farther from God. They've gotten farther from the truth. That by my time, 1975, 1985, uh, the church is, uh, is, is in a real mess. They got, they, got a, they got a system of rules. They all got proper haircuts. All the ladies have dresses on, and they're the right length. No slacks for women. They've got Christian culture now. They've got institutions that are called bastions of orthodoxy, standing for the truth. They've got a great system of rules and regulations for Christians to follow. It has learned not to give a bad report, even when the pastor has apostatized and is teaching heresy. 
Leaders teach men and women about faith and God supplying their needs while they live on tax-free property and live in $200,000 homes making uh, $300,000 a year, uh, you know, and uh, being furnished with cars. And they're trying to, people like that who are making twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year to, to live by faith and trust God. It's kind of a joke. This is the age of mass evangelism. This is the age that I grew up in. And this thing was well on its way when I got plugged in about 1970. But I saw the heyday of it. And uh, from 1970 on, I certainly had my eyes opened and, and saw a lot of things. This is the age that uh, I grew up in uh, and the, what the first 50 years of the Laodicean church produced with God's true church. And it moved into the age of mass evangelism. It moved into the age of gigantic buildings and building programs. And uh, young young men are taught in Bible college uh, that the way that you build a church is that the secular school had been so bad by this time and and was going so bad, and this is especially true in the 80s and the 90s, that the young seminary student at at all the Bible colleges, uh, fundamental Bible colleges, are taught that the way you build a church is not by going out and winning people to Christ or teaching the Bible, but what you do is you... Uh, you get a church going and you start a Christian school. And then you get in the pulpit and you blast the public schools and tell them how they're all of the devil and that their kids are going to die and go to hell if they don't come to a Christian school. And then uh, you scare all the parents so they start putting their kids in Christian school and then you require them to come to your church to be part of your Christian school. That's how it worked. And of course, uh, when they got them into the Christian school, the parents made a tragic mistake. And the tragic mistake that they meant that was that they thought that because it was a Christian school, that uh, there was a big sign up there in front of the door that stopped the devil from coming in. And of course, uh, once they got into that, they found out that the devil was more prevalent in the Christian schools than he ever was in the public schools. And that system fell apart. And so it's just been one mess after the other of, of trying to uh, come up with a system that is uh, against, uh, you know, uh, uh, to try to replace the Word of God. This is where uh, we just keep uh, pouring money into things. And the God's, heart, God, God's heart is no longer truth. Now it's the souls of men or the missions or uh, the church itself, and we completely lose the Bible definitions. Bible colleges begin to spring up all over the place. Fellowships begin to form uh, with all these Baptist churches. They become political organizations that basically hate each other. And uh, you have the, uh, the BBC crowd down in, uh, in Springfield. You have the Tennessee Temple crowd down in Tennessee. You have the uh, Jack Hiles crowd out there in Hammond, Indiana. You have the uh, uh, Bob Jones crowd down in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, you have the Jack Baskin crowd out in California. You have the Baptist Bible College East up in uh, Boston. And uh, everybody breaks up in their little groups and their little fellowships. And these become like little kingdoms. And where, you know, the Baptist church has preached against the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope for, for hundreds of years. Now we've just dumped the, the Pope and just put up about 500 little popes over the fellowships. And it becomes a very political thing. It becomes a very, very political organization. It always does. And the Bible colleges teach young people the same things that secular education taught them 50 years ago. I had a chance uh, a number of times in the probably 20 years ago 
when all this was coming down, I had some friends that were still connected with the um, the Baptist Bible College East in particular and Baptist Bible Springfield. And when I'd go up to preach for the church, it would ever kind of fall on a, uh, a time when they were having a fellowship meeting and the guy was was his turn to preach. Uh, he'd always uh, let me go in and preach on the King James Bible. And what a fellowship meeting is, is you get 300 pastors, you know, from all the churches. They all come in and hobnob together and and um, they all have a guy who's over them and you know, the churches all kind of have a loose fellowship, as they call it, but this, it's more than that. It's a political organization. And I remember standing up there and telling them, you know, the fact that um, that uh, 50 years ago, when we sent our kids off to secular colleges, and uh, your kids went off to college someplace, the college professor got up and told your kid that the Bible was a bunch of junk and there was no absolute truth. We hated that so desperately that you guys started your own Bible college to preach the, uh, the Word of God and preserve your kids. And now here it is 50 years later, your college professors are getting up in your colleges and telling the kids that that Bible is not the true Word of God and there's no absolute. In other words, you're telling them in their Bible college what they told them in secular school 50 years ago. Well, you guess that didn't go over very well, but, you know, it is what it is. They both were telling the students there is no absolute. Education around the beginning of the turn of the 1900s, and it builds through there, and it does this through the neo-evangelical crowd and the neo-orthodox crowd. Education becomes the god of Christianity, and uh, culture becomes its handmaid. Uh, to be a hellfire damnation preacher or preaching church is not popular anymore. Uh, Bob Jones University did more to bring in the culture of Christianity and uh, destroy the hard preaching of Christianity uh, in their group, probably than anybody else that I know. And uh, they all want to be prestigious. They always want to be accredited. And uh, it's all about education. And uh, you begin to see it around, uh, you, and just, you know, you begin to see it very dearly, uh, clearly around, uh, around the 1900s. Clarence, Clarence Larkin, uh, we sell his books over there. I don't, we don't sell them all, but the one that we sell most of is the, the, the Big Dispensational Truth. And Clarence Larkin lived at the turn of the century. That was when he was at his peak. And uh, I think the dispensational truth is written about 1910, 19, someplace in there. And uh, I, I hold that in our bookstore because this dispensational truth, for the most part, is one of the fundamentally sound, great books that you're ever going to get your hands on of figuring out dispensation. That's why it's called dispensational truth. But you've got to be careful with his material, and about, uh, I'd say that probably 80 to 85% of it is pretty good stuff, but about 15% of it is just about as worthless as it could ever be. And when you get into his uh, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning of his book, uh, he gets into this canopy theory and this cloud theory and all of this stuff. Let me tell you why he's so on with 85% of his stuff, but when it comes to creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, he just fell apart and come up with some goofy thing that uh, is just absolutely ridiculous. That's because in 1900, one of the great issues that was going on with the Bible uh, uh, was the concept of evolution. And evolution had come out about uh, right before the Civil War, uh, right during maybe early part of the Civil War, about the 1860s. And, and evolution had rocked the world of the, you know, the origin of the species and all that stuff. And we saw that the world now was completely looking to 
uh, education and science to, for all the answers, and it's moving that way. Well, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately for us, fortunately for the devil, theology began to go that way too. And when the evangelicals came in and the neo-orthodox came in around 1900, it lifted everything up that Christianity now was taken in the Bible from the common man and was put back in the higher institutions of learning. So Clarence Larkin and all of these guys, they want to be recognized uh, as, as learned men. It was pretty foolish, and you got laughed at back then like you get laughed at now if you get up in your pulpits and said Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 is a gap because that God and the devil got into a fight and kicked the universe out of the place, and the earth got knocked out of its place, and it was a battle left the whole thing in chaos. That's not scientific. It's not, theog- it's not theological, see? It's too basic. So they were laughed at for believing those things. So all of these guys bent to that, and they succumbed to it, and that's why Clarence Larkin, who's probably one of the best Bible teachers you ever find uh, of his day, uh, come up with his own theory. That's the key word. We can't have the Bible fact of the gap. We've got to have the Bible you know, like somebody says, you believe the gap theory. I believe the gap's a fact. I don't believe it's a theory in any way, shape, or form. I can find a gap running all the way through the Bible. The only gap you can't see is the one between your ears. It don't let you see the real one in the Bible. But the, the gap is not a theory. But science will accept theories, you see. You don't have to have fact in science to be respectable. You just got to have a good theory. Because nobody can argue with a theory because your theory is as good as anybody else's theory and you can sit around and talk about theories, but you never get to any truth. Well, that's what happened in, in, in Christianity and that's what happened in all of that. So when Clarence Larkin wrote his first couple of chapters on the creation, he comes up with his canopy theory. He comes up with the cloud theory that the earth was bathed in a cloud. So that's where the darkness of Genesis chapter 1 came in. See, that was acceptable, even though maybe nobody would believe it. But as long as it's a theory, it's okay. It's when you get up and start talking dogmatic like I do, when you throw the theory out the window and you basically lay it out as fact that you're going to get into trouble. And the educated world today laughs at the gap, except now they just don't laugh at the gap. Now they laugh at the rapture of the church. They laugh at premillennialism. They laugh at that book being the word of God. It went a long way farther, uh, but it all started right around there. The, uh, the concept of, of Darwin's evolution had changed the scientific world, and the Christian world, as far as the theological bastions of theology, felt the impact too. So they didn't want to be laughed at. Pastors wanted to be credible. They wanted to be looked at as scholars. And you will hear today that no scholar... No scholar will really believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. Well, if you want to be a scholar and you know that nobody will recognize you as a scholar, if you believe that, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to take your own system or their system so you can be recognized as a scholar. That's what's happened here. That's what killed the church. And, of course, uh, we see it all down through it. And the Bible colleges... Uh, you know, they, they, they begin to move toward a cultured thing. They begin to move toward a, a Christianity thing uh, or a educa- Christian education concept. Uh, and it becomes where we start turning out preachers and we start turning out teachers. And preaching goes away. You can get on your Christian radio station unless you get one of the black preachers 
because black preachers are the only ones that can get away with it today because everybody thinks of a black preacher as just a good old boy, you know, that really doesn't mean well, doesn't mean much, but we listen to him because he's black and he does a good job screaming and yelling. Nobody takes him seriously. You listen to the white preachers on the radio, any Christian radio you want to get on to, you'll never hear anybody preaching. It'll be Dr. Swindoll, it'll be Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine. It'll be somebody up there just telling you the truth, how good you are, laying the thing out. It'll be Dr. Clyde Nairymind or somebody like that up there. You know, uh, somebody that gets up there and just teaches and lays it all out, but nobody that preaches. Preaching's gone. Preaching's gone. And it went out during this period of time. The true Baptist distinctives that real Bible believers died for, as we looked at earlier in the arena, are thrown out. Nobody has them anymore. The Donatists, the Novations, the Waldensians, the Lawlers, all those groups that shed their blood for the true Baptist distinctives that they would not sell out, finally got sold out. Uh, the Bible, and of course, those distinctives of the Bible is the final authority in all things. The eternal insurance of the salvation of the believer. And of course, soul winning, uh, winning people to Christ. That's turned into a gimmick and a program to, to sell their books and build big churches. The local churches, uh, the concept of a local church basically becomes a three-ring circus with every kind of concept you can come up with. They have everything now to get people in. The Holy Spirit of God doesn't do it anymore. God's people don't do it anymore. They go to church, they sit, they get taught, they get fat, but they never do anything. So to keep the machinery running, we got to invent things. So this was the era of my day where uh, pastors had a gimmick every time. One Sunday, it'd be friend day. <clears throat> Bring all your friends. And that was a big day. And they, you'd, have, you'd, have, uh, you'd have Baptist churches went, went across the country. They'd hold a contest for 10 weeks. And the contest would be that they would set a goal for attendance, and this church would set a goal for attendance, and then they would have a rivalry between the two, that they'd have a 10-week Sunday school campaign. And at the end of the Sunday school campaign, the winning church, uh, the pastor that lost had to fly out and give a trophy to the one at one, you know, and it was all about bringing people in to win them to Christ. Yeah, right. It had nothing to do with winning people to Christ. And the reason why I know that's true, because when I was there, I saw it. And two, once we got them saved, we never did anything with them. Never did a thing with them. It was all about how big a church you could have, and we went from friend day to hot dog day to ball game day to baby day to old folks day, parachute day. Churches had guys parachuting in the parking lot at the end of the church. Had a guy run around called Patch the Gospel Pirate out of BBC down in there, and he'd come up with his pirate suit on and get up on your stage, and he'd be the gospel pirate guy, and he'd bring in the gospel message from gospel to pirate. We'd have Senior Citizens Day. We'd have Mother's Day. We'd have Father's Day. We'd have Heaven Sunday, have Skipper the Gospel Dog Sunday, Text the Gospel Cowboy Sunday. We actually had a guy come to when I was at a church, and I was just a staff member then. Text the Gospel Cowboy. He actually came in. Dressed as a cowboy with two suit, six shooters on his hip with wax bullets and shot beer cans off the baptistry. I mean, he was a pretty good shot. Killed two people in the choir, but that was all right. <laughs> but that's what it was. That's what it was. It had nothing to do, at least with a great Sunday school campaign. I remember one time we had a Sunday school campaign that, you know, that went on for 10 weeks and it was themed God versus the devil. And we had a goal of like 2,100 people every week. And if you made 2,100 people, God won. If you had less than 2,100 people, the devil won. And, of course, the idea was put the pressure on the people. Uh, to, um, to, uh, the, 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 you don't want the devil to win. 
So you put the pressure on the people. Don't want you let the devil win now. Get out there and win. Get the people. Win them to Christ. Get them coming. Get this. Do that. Get all this stuff, you know. And uh, bow it all up. Devil beat us seven Sundays out of ten. I mean, uh, didn't go over very well. After a while, by the time this went on, five, ten years, people got tired, man. They got wore out. There was so much energy. It had to go into these days and so many had to think. There was a banquet for everything. Every time you turn around, there was a stewardship banquet. There was a friend day banquet. There was an organizational banquet for the organizational banquet for the organizational banquet. It, it would just, it never ended. And after a while, your people just got wore out and tired and just, it just didn't work. By the time 1975, 76 came around, a guy by the name of Elmer Towns. Elmer Towns was down out of BBC in Springfield. Elmer Towns couldn't make it as a preacher. Elmer Towns couldn't make it much of anything, but he, uh, he found a way to do it. He wrote a book that was called The Ten Top Sunday Schools in America. And boy, who didn't want to be in that? And Elmer Towns would travel around and come to the churches to check out to see if your church would be one of the ten in his book. Now, who didn't want to be in Elmer Towns' book? Who didn't want to be, if this thing is where it's going and you want to be the Taj Mahal, and you got this big building, who wouldn't want the prestige and the notoriety to be in the top 10 Sunday schools in America if ego is your game? And you can imagine how that went. When, um, when, he, when Elmer came to town, boy, he was wined and dined, and he was put up there in the nest hotels and taken out to eat the finest steaks. And he'd come to church on Sunday, and you'd try to get a big crowd there and pack it out. And uh, he would look at it and graded church and talk to all the staff members and take a crowd, take a picture of all the people. And I remember in one picture, we're all standing there, you know, and he's in the baptistry or whoever was taking a picture, you know, and the crowd behind us is just packed out there. And there's the pastor with all the little hirelings around there and everybody just smiling like a Chessie cat, you know, or a coon caught in the tree and, you know, <laughs> Folksberry time and, and taking a picture behind him, just throngs of people. Everybody hoping they'd be in Elmer Town's book. And, uh, you know, so he picked the top 10 Sunday schools, put out his book. It was a bestseller. Well, Elmer's not to be undone. So the next year or two or three years later, he uh, comes out with another book. And that is the second 10 top churches in the country. I mean, if it works once, it'll work twice. <laughs> Elmer knew one thing. He didn't know much about the Bible. He didn't know much about anything at all coming to Christianity. But he did know one thing. There was a sucker born every minute. And he played right into it, boy. And uh, he got around and he played that thing twice. And I thought it was interesting. By the time 10 years had uh, went by, now Elmer Towns was doing this in the 70s, uh, about 74, 75, 76, 77, up through that time period. By the time we got into the 80s in 1985, he, uh, he wrote a third book. But this third book had nothing to do with the 10 top Sunday schools anymore because those churches that all were big churches were now on a decline. The people were wore out. The gimmicks ran out. I even know uh, the bus ministers were really big back then. And of course, we could, you could always count on getting a good attendance with two or 300 bus kids coming in. And I know bus directors that uh, used to pay kids 50 cents to ride the bus to come to church. And just so they could get 300 people to the bus, so they could win some contest or brag about their, their deal. <clears throat> I knew pastors that didn't care how many people got saved on Sunday. It didn't care if the Holy Spirit of God was there or not. If he met his goal and had 2,100 people on Sunday 
Monday morning was a heyday for him, and he was happy. If he did not make his goal, he was the most depressed, miserable person you ever met in your life. And it's all because of the fact that we were driven by the wrong things. And uh, Jack Hiles had a Sunday school class. He's dead now. He ran uh, uh, the church in Hammond, Indiana. Jack Hiles built a church of 14,000 people, got the notoriety of being the greatest Baptist church in the country, loved that notoriety, and uh, talked about how great the church was and how great it all was. And when he got right down to it, you know what Jack Howe was doing? Jack Howe was running 200 buses, some of them going 75 miles one way to bring kids in to keep that numbers up. Uh, you see, you like the prestige. When he got that notoriety, of course, the next thing he does is he holds every pastor in the country wants to know Jack Kyle's secret. So they hold pastor's conferences, see? And all the pastors across the country for $150 a head come in, you know, and they sit down there and have seminars and classes and lectures and roundtables and all of these things of, of dissecting the ministry. And they have one for youth work. They have one for this, the bus ministry and all these things where these pastors can go can learn all these great godly secrets that's going to really build your church and then go home, back home and implement them. When all they needed was a dime store Bible that you could have bought for $1.75 at Dollar General Store. But that's where it's at. That's where it's at in my day. I saw it. I was there. I was even part of it. Of course, at that point, I didn't have any choice in it. That's where I was in life, and that's all it was. But uh, O. Elmer Towns, uh, he published his book, and boy, America, uh, I mean, America just, Christianity just fell for it. The power of God and the success of the ministry is now associated with big crowds. Multi-million dollar buildings, Big bank accounts, bond drives, building programs, soul winning seminars, big bus ministry, Sunday school becomes the main service, and anything goes. Just get them there. One church had a pastor, build it all week long, that the pastor would ride a mini bike down the main aisle of the church uh, if the crowd showed up and had enough people there, and he'd drive a ride a mini bike down there. I mean, it was a funny thing. It wasn't usually a pastor riding a mini. Well, when he's 450 pounds, it's a pretty good deal, you know. <laughs> And so he, he wrote it down there, you know, and everybody applauded, and he gets up, and that's the kind of stuff they did. The Bible was gone. The power of God was gone. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just the way that it all went. Christianity become the Disneyland. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 23. I'll show you another one. It becomes a dream world. And the dream has now turned into a nightmare. But it's, uh, look at Jeremiah chapter 23. I'll show you another one here. Boy, these things are so powerful and so rich. Look at verse uh, 24. 23, 24. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? Have I heard what prophets said that prophesied lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. There's your Martin Luther King. I have a dream. See? Right there in Jeremiah chapter 23. There he is. Unfortunately, he's not the only one. Pastors back then lived in a dream world. I got a dream. Let's build this big building. Oral Roberts said, I got a dream. Let's build this prayer tower. Everybody said, I got a dream. Let's build this great Christian education facility. I got a dream. Let's build this great project and get ourselves and make it like we, got, we can hold 10,000 people and then fill it up. I got a dream. 
But the Bible says, I've had heard that what the prophets have said, that prophesy lies in my name. God wasn't in any of it. God is not in big buildings. He's not in big bank accounts. He's not in big anything. He's in just the book. And uh, all you need to do a work for God is the book. God will supply the rest. But we see now how this fits into our, our Laodicean church period, how that they, uh, they're, they're big, they're rich, they're, they'll have need of nothing. This is the Laodicean church building. Multi-million dollar buildings. I mean, uh, some of these buildings, uh, these churches here, right in their own town. I mean, some of them, uh, I can't even imagine. Some of them were $68 million in the first phase of building. How'd you like to have an a electric bill and a heating bill of $200,000 a month? You know what kind of offerings you've got to have to support that, plus pay your building, plus pay your multi-dimensional staff? Man, that's why when you're under that kind of pressure, you don't have to, your, your, your preaching is dictated by the bills you've got to pay. And that's a bad situation to find yourself in. Bad situation to find yourself in. But that's where they're all at. And, uh, our, uh, and like I said, the one church in Indiana, their Jack Howe Church, was seven buses, 75 miles one way. Now, what happened when these great churches finally got their millions of people together? And they did. They brought these people in. Uh, but when they finally got there, the churches were so shot and so worthless, they got a wishy-washy message. If you go to these churches today, you know what you're going to hear? And it, most of you know this is true because most of you have been there. You're going to hear about uh, 15 minutes of some kind of watered-down Bible and 35 minutes of giving money. They're going to have a thing for you to give everything you got everywhere you can. I was home in Ohio. I went to my old home church, Canton Baptist Temple. This is Sunday, September 5th, 2010. And I hadn't been there for 20-some years. And uh, they always put this out, little thing that everybody gets, you know. Uh, the take home for, and tell you what's going on. And uh, they were getting ready to start again a Sunday school campaign. <coughs> and this is where it's at today. It hasn't changed. It's only gotten worse. And uh, you'll notice here that they always give the reports from Sunday, August 29th, attendance, Sunday school, 1011, morning worship, uh, the Canton campus, 1255, Green campus, that's up north, 83, total, 1338. Uh, you know, uh, uh, now, they had 1338 on Sunday morning, evening worship, 301. thousand people decided to go someplace else. <laughs> See? It's a game. If I was a pastor and I had 1,300 people on Sunday morning and only 300 come back, I'd go blow my brains out and go home to be with the Lord. <laughs> there's something wrong somewhere. I mean, there's something wrong about that. Well, here's the reason. They're getting ready to start a new Sunday school campaign. It's called Fall CBT 1100. The reason that most people do not attend church is because they have not been invited. This is the, this is the punchline set up for, to put you on a guilt trip. September 12th through November 7th is the Fall CBT 1100. This campaign is designed to help each of us invite friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers to attend church. It all starts with the national Back to Church Sunday next week. That was the week after I was there. I go over nine weeks of the campaign is to increase our overall Sunday school attendance by 10%, which will bring us to an average of 1,100 people. Okay? They're going to do it through a Sunday school campaign. 
They're going to do it by bringing you in on Sunday morning and uh, going out there and thinking that the reason why people don't come to church is because they're not invited. No, the reason why people don't come to church is because they're sick and tired of goofy stuff just like this. That's why they don't come to church. Oh, here comes the best part. Beginning today, got to have a little snappy thing in it. Beginning today, you can register to be part of the pit crew. It's a race for souls, so you got to have a pit crew. Come in and change your gym shoes in three seconds and get you back on the track. No, no, pit crew has a meaning. Beginning today, you can register to be part of the pit crew in your class. By doing this, you agree to pray, P, invite, I, and to trust. Pit, pit crew. During the CBT 1100, when you register, oh yeah, don't forget this, you will also receive a wristband that will help you to remember your commitment to pray. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. If I got to give you a wristband for you to remember to pray for something, get out of here. Get, get, get out of here. Now, you either, some of you won't pray, you can stay. I appreciate that. But if you're in this church and this church is not as important to you that you don't know what's important to pray about and, and you're not praying for it, get out of here. I'm not going to give you a wristband so every time you look at your wrist, I mean, that you'll, that you'll remember to pray. That ain't done yet. Adults who bring the most first-time visitors during a campaign with a minimum of 10 will win an $1,100 fuel card. The person in student ministry who brings the most first-time visitors with a minimum of 10 will win an Apple iPad. These incentives are being made available for the purpose of having a maximum impact on as many visitors as possible. Yeah, don't let what you're supposed to do as a child of God enter into this any way, shape, or form. Don't realize that I've ordained you that you may go and bring forth fruit and your fruit remain, John chapter 15. Don't let that get into it. No, no, no. We'll entice you to go bring people because you're such a lousy, worthless Christian, but you'll do it for a gas card, but you won't do it for the Lord. You see what this is? Now, back there, this is absolutely acceptable. This is, I mean, they, would, they would listen to what I'm just saying and say, what is wrong with him? Well, he got up on the wrong side of the bed today. Yeah, and I'm staying up on that wrong side of it when it comes to stuff like this. This is goofy. And of course, well, I'll pass this around because I want you to see the, the guy that's, and this is typical. If you want to lay the sea in pasture today, when you look at this guy, you just thank God you got the guy you got up here versus this guy. So I'm going to fold it up so you can't miss it. I'm going to pass this around. This is the man here, right here. So we'll start over here. Now, I know you're single, so I don't want you calling him in Canton. I don't know. He might be good for you. The sermon wasn't very, it was, was probably watered down, but it had a decent outline. Now, this guy can only see his picture, but he is, he is, uh, <laughs> see what I'm talking about? Whoa. 
That's you put a you put a you see you put a crash helmet on him to ride a motorbike. It'd be wall to wall face. <laughs> Look familiar to any of you folks? I mean, uh, yeah. you see one, you've seen them all. <laughs> <laughs> You think he ever was in a Marine Corps boot camp, Bill? You think? He was in a pork chop with him. He was a cook. I got to show Jimmy. Yeah, oh yeah, go show Jimmy. Where'd he go to school? I have no idea. Wow. I think it was Pillsbury. <laughs> Well, I'm telling you, and that's the, that's the bus, that's the evangelism guy right there. That's the evangelism guy. The pastor, the pastor is a, is kind of a milky toast, wishy-washy type of guy. Nice guy. I don't take anything from him, but he couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. I sit there for an hour and it it reminded me of a a motor that had a bad, uh, um, starter. He just couldn't get started. I mean, he was, I, it was a good outline. In fact, I copied it down and put it in my Bible, but it's an outline that, that needed to be preached. And he, he's not going to preach. He kept asking questions, you know, and he kept putting it into affirmative. And he would say, now, don't we do this? And, and, and nothing, nothing to make anybody mad. In fact, during this time, the theme, don't rock the boat, becomes a, you see, you can't make anybody mad when you got to pay the kind of expenses the people got to pay to keep the church going. You can't afford to lose anybody. You can never in anything you do as a Christian, probably anything in life, never let money drive be the driving force behind what you got to do or how you got to do it. Once you get yourself in a hole financially because you've bit off more than you can chew, obviously he's bit off quite a bit more than he could chew <laughs> and chewed it anyhow, <laughs> swallowed it whole or whatever he did. You get yourself in a situation that you can, you, you start worrying about who you're going to offend, what you're going to say, losing this family or that family because of what you say or way you deal with something, because at the end of the day, no bucks, no buck Rogers. And you just can't get in that boat. Where once a pastor stood for what God's man should be and do, but a time the latest in church period in full swing, which is 60s, 70s, 80s, and even up to now, the pastor looks like this guy, you know. He's a walrus in a $500 suit. I don't know what else to tell you. He couldn't run a 100-yard dash in less than three days. <laughs> where once the, once the man of God's hands were hard with the labors of his people, where they, they become soft and, 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 and effeminate Christianity. And uh, by 1985 to 1990s, the body of Christ was passive. Uh, the artificial light of artificial chapels where artificial pastors who preached artificial messages produced artificial Christians who gave an artificial testimony. And Bible Christianity had become a religion for old ladies and kids. If there's one thing the Laodicean church period has produced, it's produced generation after generation after generation of spiritual babies. This is why that there's no steel in the backbone of Christians today. This is the only period in church history where the body of Christ, at least in America anyhow, never pays a price uh, or is never persecuted for what they believe, at least in America. Now, we have during this time a very important thing to understand. 
And I know that this, these guys really won't mean much to you. At some point in your life, they should. But these are what I call the transitional pastors. These are the Bible-believing guys that pretty much started out at the beginning of the century, and then I'm going to show you how they, what they transitioned to uh, by our day, my day and then your day today. <clears throat> now, early on, <clears throat> you had guys like George Truett, and he would go all the way back uh, <clears throat> into the middle of the 1800s. Mel Trotter was another one. Mel Trotter was a great a preacher who got saved in uh, a mission at Pacific Garden State, uh, 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 Pacific Street Mission in California. Uh, uh, Lewis Sperry Schaefer was a good, solid theologian. Uh, Harry Ironside, uh, his books, uh, even though Harry was not big into doctrine, he had a good foundation in the Bible, and any book by Ironside will give you uh, a good fundamental grasp of principles. He was a Bible believer, and he really was a, a good guy. We have J. Frank Norris, who at some point in your life, you need, and we'll talk about him a little bit later on, but J. Frank Norris is, uh, is the, really the only reason tonight uh, that you and I still have a King James Bible. J. Frank Norris was a preacher down in, uh, that went into the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and you got to remember, back in the early 1900s, there was only three brands of Baptists, basically. There was the GRB, there was the uh, American Baptist, and uh, the GRB being the General Association of Baptists, and then there was, a, there was the Southern Baptist. And the Southern Baptist, by far, was the largest contingency. By, the, by 1910, 1920, 1930, they, had, uh, they were the largest group uh, around. They felt the full brunt of the neo-evangelical and the neo-orthodox movement. They dumped the King James Bible in 1888 in their big fellowship conference down in Sarasota, Florida. And by the time we get into the 20s, they are completely in apostasy. Their, 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 their schools are telling their young pastor students that the Bible is not the Word of God, that the story of Adam and Eve is not true, that there really was not a flood, that Noah's a fictional character. Uh, many of them did not believe in the literal blood of Christ atoning for your sin. And the Southern Southern Baptist Convention had got into a real, real, real mess. And they were as bad off as they had ever been at any time in their life. Well, they took in a young guy by the name of J. Frank Norris, who, and in a typical way of this, in fact, the young guy that I talked to, I told you Sunday, that called me last week that uh, took that church, it was a Southern Baptist church that he took over. And we were talking about that, and the first thing the Southern Baptist did is bring a delegation up to his church and make him a trustee within the Southern Baptist Convention. You see, that's what they do. It's all politics. They made him somebody in the Southern Baptist Convention for the purpose of controlling you in your church, bringing you in, giving you some notoriety, giving you a position, and giving you uh, a little bit of uh, 15 minutes of fame, so to speak, and then that's how they control you. Well, that's been their tactic all through here. That's what they did with J. Frank North. They set him up in a church uh, and down in Texas, and of course, from the first day, uh, you know, they, 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 they knew they were in trouble. J. Frank North did not bow down to the Southern Baptist Convention. 
he stayed true to his biblical convictions and he preached the Word of God. And he just about tore the thing for six ways from Sunday. I mean, they, it, it, he, they have never recovered from J. Frank Norris, nor should they. And of course, J. Frank Norris was the, was the atomic structure sledgehammer that, that busted the back of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, uh, you know, he'd go into there and, uh, and uh, he'd start preaching against sin the way it should be preached. And he was a, he was a, he was a hellfire damnation guy, man, when it came to preaching. And he'd tear the paint off the wall. In one particular, that particular church, the deacons called him into a meeting after about six months of him being a pastor and said, we're going to fire you. He turned around and fired all the deacons. And, uh, and no matter what they wanted to do, they could not get rid of him because the people knew that he was saying was right, and they stuck up for him. But boy, he tore the place apart. Finally, uh, about 19, in the 1940s, he breaks with the Southern Baptist Convention, and he, he starts the, what's called the World Baptist Fellowship. And from that, from that, without getting into all the details, because we'll get into it a little bit farther on. From that comes the Baptist Bible Fellowship that, that, uh, that produced the first fundamentals, the fundamentalist. And every Baptist church that you know of today, every Baptist church that you know of today that is what we call, a, or what they would call a fundamental Baptist church, comes out of J. Frank Norris. All the other churches are Southern Baptists that stayed in the convention. And I don't care where you go. I'm telling you right now that in this town tonight, uh, there's every Baptist church that's not a Southern Baptist church that's been around for 30, 40 years came out of J. Frank Norris. There would not be a fundamentalist movement without J. Frank Norris. You know what J. Frank Norris split with the, Roman, uh, with the Southern Baptist church over? King James Bible, along with all the other stuff they're teaching. He put a big Bible college down in, uh, down in Texas, and on the, it took up three whole city blocks. And along the top of that was the, I forget what the name of the Bible college was, but it says the only Christian college in America teaching and believing the King James Bible as the absolute Word of God. J. Frank Norris was a great guy, and uh, he had his problems. He was human just like anybody else. And, uh, I mean, uh, he, he, but, boy, you can't. You can't, uh, you can't take on what he took on without being a little weird someplace along the line. We have William Scroggie, who was a great writer of, of commentaries on the Bible. Mordecai Ham was a great black preacher that preached. Robert Schuller, and now this is the grandfather of the Robert Schuller in the Crystal Cathedral out in California. Robert Schuller was a born-again, hellfire, damnation, Methodist preacher back in the early 20s that would tear the paint off the hide off the wall. Uh, come a long way from his, from his grand, great-grandson, who is the guy out there now, Charles Fuller, Martin DeHaan. Now, these guys come up uh, along in the age with Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday was the great evangelist that kind of kept all this thing moving along. Billy Sunday was born in 1862. He dies in 1935. But Billy Sunday was the single-handed evangelist that, that basically held off the neo-evangelicals. And he was hated by the neo-Orthodox and the neo. He was absolutely hated. And, of course, uh, the people loved him. And he traveled across this country, and he was the, he was the sixth great awakening that uh, this country had and needed. 
And I gave you that when we came through it. And uh, he was a great preacher. He was a professional ball player. And then he got saved and he turned to evangelism and he literally tore the world apart uh, in America. And he was a great, 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 great preacher. Personally, single-handedly, with his own preaching, uh, brought about the change in his country that brought about the prohibition law that outlawed liquor. And of course, uh, that all came about because of the temperance movement, but that all came about uh, because of, uh, of his preaching. You got to Google him on uh, in the internet sometime. There's a number of pictures of him and a number of things that uh, says about him uh, that he was a great guy. Now, all those guys lived and died before I was born. And uh, they were, for the most part, were good guys and they held the line. I was saved, I was born in 1950. I got right with the Lord in 1971. And these next guys uh, that I'm going to talk about are all guys that I knew. I've heard them preach, many of them many times. I've talked to many of these guys. Many of these guys died within the last 15 years. I preached in Bible conferences with with many of them. I've heard all of them preach uh, at, at one point or the other, just about all of them. And uh, they, uh, they form, they form the, the next generation of preachers. Most of these guys uh, that I'm going to name here come out of J. Frank Norris's crowd. When J. Frank Norris left with the Southern Baptist Convention, he took a lot of preacher boys with him. These preacher boys that he took became the pastors of the major Baptist churches in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s until they died in the 90s. And uh, these are things that helped put it all together. One of the ones was John R. Rice. John R. Rice was an evangelist. John R. Rice was a son. All these guys were Southern Baptists at one point, and then they left because of the Southern. John R. Rice was a great uh, soul winner. Uh, He was one of the great old preachers. And uh, I've heard him preach probably four or five times. And uh, he was a great soul winner. I mean, when he preached, people got saved. But he wound up at the end of his life, like most of these guys. What happened was, as he went on in his years, Bible colleges who were phony wanted to identify themselves with the real. So what they would do, they would kind of adopt one of these guys bring him in, take care of him, give him a place, find him meetings, but they would, they, would, they would kind of hitchhike off of him to give the impression that if you go to our school, you're going to be like John R. Rice. And in every case, these guys sold their birthright, so to speak, and became uh, apostate, John R. Rice being one of them. John R. Rice starts out believing the King James Bible, one of the greatest preachers and soul winners you ever find. Uh, the last 20 years of his life, he, he fought more against the King James Bible, not believing it, uh, than, he, than he did winning souls to Christ. You know why? Because he got hooked up with a Bible college down there in Lynchburg, Virginia, Jerry uh, Farwell, and he got hooked up with those guys. And they didn't believe the book. And he got, and, and here's what happened. Here's what happened. They started giving him a, uh, he, didn't, he didn't have anything all of his life. He gave all that he had to God and preached and lived, had nothing. So somebody finally takes him in and starts buying him nice suits, buying him nice food, taking care of him, giving him a place to stay. 
And uh, you think that you're going to buck that uh, when you've had that thing in your life and now that you're down at the end of your life, you think a guy is going to walk away from that when he has nothing to offer his wife uh, who's been faithful with him in the ministry? You see, it's tempting. And all these guys fell for it. All of these guys took the free ride, but along with the free ride, there was no free ride and they all had to take a stand against the King James Bible to keep the food coming in and to keep the, the vacations coming and keep the notoriety. Every time that, that he was in town, uh, as a little bit later on, some of the other guys, when he died off, they just kept replacing him. Every time he was in town at Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, when Jerry Farwell was up there preaching, he'd have those guys sitting on the platform as the old guard, so to speak. Well, it was good for Jerry, for people to see it, but it was also prestigious for the guy to be now in with the in crowd again. And they all sold their birthright. John R. Rice was one of the greatest soul-winning preachers, but he spent the last 10, 15, 20 years of his life denying the King James Bible and fighting everybody over it and accepting the NIV. Well, back then it was the ASV. Billy Graham's another one. Billy Graham starts out as a pastor, a Baptist preacher. Believe it or not, he starts out in, in tow with Pete Ruckman. And the two were friends back way back when, and, and Billy Graham wanted Pete to go on the road with him and be an evangelist, but Pete saw through the thing and saw that it was not what he wanted him to do and struck out on his own. Greatest decision he probably ever made in his life. Because they both were in evangelism for like 10 or 15, 20 years. And uh, Ruckman now is 87 or 88, and he's just as sharp, sharp as a tack and believe the book and more meaner than a junkyard dog than he's ever been. And Billy, Sunday, or, and Billy Graham now thinks that uh, the Muslims are going to heaven and uh, the Pope's okay, the greatest Christian in the world, and uh, he doesn't even believe there's a hell anymore. I'm telling you, man. I'm telling you. And there's a great story behind all of these, but I, I don't have time to go into it. R.A. Torrey, another one. R.A. Torrey was a great preacher, but he never really believed the Bible. He's in this period of time. He's kind of a crossover. He was a big RSV guy. And you can find books by R.A. Torrey, uh, and you'll always have quotes from the RSV in it. Bob Jones Sr., there's a Gridman. Bob Jones Sr. was an was a old Methodist preacher. And Bob Jones Sr. was a hellfire damnation preacher boy out of the first part of the 1900s, and boy, he was something else. And as he come down the line there, and he had some boys, and those boys grew up and got into, uh, got into Christianity, and the Christian education movement started, they started uh, what is commonly known today as Bob Jones University. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, uh, once the old man got old and, and the boys took it over, and uh, it was Bob Jones the uh, second, and then Bob Jones the third. Bob Jones the second dead now, and Bob Jones the third. I don't know if he's still down there or not, but uh, those were the boys that his boys that ran it, and um, they all apostatized and went with the NIV. Interesting story that I, I've used many, many times. Never used it around you guys, but it's uh, one of those ones I got tucked away that I, I, uh, I, I saw many, many, many years ago. The old boy, the old boy Bob Jones Sr. After a while. He got to the point where he got senile. And uh, they kept him on campus down there and basically let him live there, you know, but he never preached anymore. He's, he's, you know, this is like four or five years before he died. 
And the stories go that, uh, that he he'd kind of senile and he, he didn't know what he was doing anymore. And the last time I, uh, I heard a message of him preaching, I never heard him preach in person because he was dead by the time I got going. But I heard a message of him and it was basically one of the last messages he preached. And he, you could tell he just kept repeating himself. He'd tell the same story over and over again. He, his mind was going. I mean, he was old. And he'd preached his lungs out for, you know, for many, many, many years. But the story is that they, they had him down on campus, and they just kind of kept him around, you know, the boys had taken it over, and their noses were... And by the way, Pete Ruckman went to uh, Bob Jones University. This is why Bob Jones University hates Pete Ruckman with such a passion. Bob Jones, uh, Bob Jones Sr. and Pete Ruckman were two of the best friends you ever had and you ever saw in your life. The old man took him in. The old man stuck by him. The old man uh, and him were good friends. In fact, uh, I've seen the letters that Brother Pete showed me years and years ago that uh, Bob Jones Sr. and him corresponding back together. And the reason why that they hate Ruckman so bad is because of the fact that the old man loved him so much. And uh, it was a story that, uh, that he'd be down there and on, on, on the morning on campus when everybody was going around, they'd find the old man dressed in his old suit with a Bible under his arm and a satchel in one hand and he'd be walking around the campus, and people would ask him uh, uh, what was, where he was and what he was doing, and he, would, he was so senile at that point, but boy, I love this story. He'd talk about the fact that he'd tell people that he had to preach, and he was trying to get to the train station to catch a train because he had to preach. I heard that story many, many times over the years, and I thought to myself, boy, I hope when I'm 85, if God gives me the grace to get to that point, and I'm so senile, I hope that instead of running around being nuts and running around crazy, I hope I'm running around with a Bible in my arm and a packed suitcase saying, I got to go preach someplace, I got to go preach someplace. He, he was a preacher, see? He, you don't find them like that anymore. Wendell Zimmerman's another one. Wendell Zimmerman was one of... Was one of, uh, was one of uh, J. Frank Norris's boys came out of the Southern Baptist Convention with him. Wendell Zimmerman came up to Kansas City here in about 1940, someplace in there, started the Kansas City Baptist Temple. Little gas station downtown converted over. Then they moved down on Swope Parkway, and then they moved about 1974, 75, they moved up to uh, where they're at now on Blue Ridge Cutoff. Wendell Zimmerman left there about 1973 or 4. Your sister married one of his yeah. boys. Yeah, and went down to Florida. Florida and pastored down there for a while. Yeah. I'll tell you something. Wendell Zimmerman could strip your hide off. I've never heard a voice more powerful in preaching than Wendell Zimmerman. This old boy could rip you six ways from Sunday and gut you like a deer upside down and just leave you hanging in a tree. I mean, he was a flat preacher. And uh, he come out of the old J. Frank Norris crowd. And, uh, you know, and uh, if old Wendell Zimmerman came back from the dead and walked through the Kansas City Baptist Temple right now, he'd have a heart attack before he got past the first poker table and the beer bottles. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's just, uh, it, but there it goes, you see. And uh, where'd he go in Florida? Jacksonville. That's right, Jacksonville. And he pastored down there to Jacksonville Baptist Temple is where he was for many years until he passed away. Great preacher. And now he's a guy that all of his life, Stayed with the King James Bible. There was a few hardliners like that. I'll tell you another one. Another one is uh, uh, John Rawlings. John Rawlings uh, uh, was the pastor of all of his life of Landmark Baptist Church. John Rawlings was one of one of Norris's boys. 
and he come out of the split and started a Landmark Baptist Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's called Landmark Baptist Church because it, that church was the first church, Baptist church, in Ohio. And Ohio became a state in 1803. And that church was there before it became a state. And he pastored that church for probably 50, 60 years. Now, there's another one, boy. Well, you all boys had one thing in common that you guys can't deal much with today. They could give you a preaching from the pulpit that you wouldn't believe. It would knock your eyeballs out, but they could also give you a cussing out that you wouldn't even understand and figure out all the words were, boy. I mean, they were all backwoods boys from the places in West Virginia and Kentucky. And, uh, well, I'll tell you what, they, they, are, they were something else, man. They were something else. And when, uh, when you cross them, boy, I mean, uh, it's like uh, old J. Frank Norris one time when a guy called him up on the phone and said he's coming down to shoot him, kill him. J. Frank Norris said, well, I'll be here till 3 o'clock. The guy showed up, walked into his office, pulled out a pistol. J. Frank Norris beat him to the draw and shot him dead right in his office, man. For that, he got the notoriety of a pistol-packing preacher. Boy, they didn't mess with him much after that. See? All the, now all the liberals, you know, all the, all the wishy-washy Baptists, they say, oh, that was such a terrible thing. Oh, they, what would the word approach of that? A terrible thing that, that he shot some man and took some man's life. That was such a terrible thing. Yeah, I tell you what, back in his day, everybody thought twice before they called him out again. See? It's only a terrible thing now because you're so wishy-washy. See, back then, it was men against men. They don't call you out today. They just stab you in the back when you ain't looking. Got uh, Harold Henniger, my pastor, who started the Canton Baptist Temple. Harold Henniger was one of the greatest people, persons I've ever met in my life. And uh, he started the Canton Baptist Temple uh, back there in about the end of the 1940s. He's one of J. Frank Norris's boys. Harold used to tell me about, I used to ask him, uh, you know, tell me about the days with J. Frank Norris. And he'd just laugh and he'd put his arm around me and he'd say, well, Bob, he says, I'll tell you. He says, he was something else. And he said that, um, he said, you know, we'd be walking across the campus and uh, going to our next class and Norris would come up and grab you and say, come on, you're preaching on the radio today. <laughs> and pull you in and put you up on the radio to preach. <laughs> and uh, uh, all these guys felt the impact of Norris. Harold Henniger started the Canton Baptist Temple. When he originally started it, back in the late 40s, uh, it was right across the street from my house, 1451 Alden Avenue, southwest Canton, Ohio. And my mom and dad were charter members in that church. And uh, it was just one little building there across the street. And then I remember in, 19, uh, in the 19, uh, late 50s, uh, they built a second addition to it. And they outgrew that one. And then they, uh, they moved out on Whipple Avenue. And now they got the place that... Uh, uh, Bozo the Clown runs and took over. Harold Henniger died about four or five years ago. And uh, he gave up pastoring uh, four or five years before that. And um, they, uh, they come to the point where uh, he, was, uh, uh, he was a great man. And uh, he really was a people person. He built, you know, he built the Canton Baptist Temple. I think he had four or five heart attacks in his ministry uh, because he just he burned himself out with people. And uh, he worried about people. Uh, he's a typical mother hen pastor. He wasn't a very good preacher. Uh, he wasn't a hellfire damnation preacher, but he had uh, his love for God and his heart carried him beyond that and gave him what he needed to do. And he, if you were in the hospital, he was there to see you. He knew everybody's name. I don't think he ever forgot anybody's name. He could not see you for 30 years. And he'd walk over and he's tall, thin, very diplomatic, and just a really, really, really nice guy. 
Started that church at about the end of the 1940s when all the boys went out believing the King James by the Word of God. By the time I got there in 1975, Bob Jones University had done its work, and now he believed the, AS, the NIV with the Word of God. The only one in that church that held the line was old Mel Sabaka. See, the devil always does it this way. What happened was, and this is how he does it, just so you learn these things. What he did was is that uh, uh, Mel, Mel Sabaka became uh, the youth pastor there uh, about t- uh, 20 years, uh, uh, I don't know, late 50s, somewhere in there. He was a superintendent at the detention home there in Clark County, same uh, one I was at after uh, when I got uh, on going. And he was a superintendent at the Stark County Detention Center there. And they asked him, because he worked with juvenile, they asked him to become the youth pastor. Well, about the same time, they brought in Mel off the street. And Mel, uh, at, once he got in there, then he, he, he met Ruckman. And Ruckman got him straightened out on his Bible. And him and Ruckman sat down in a hotel room. And I don't know what happened, but I know it was like 48 hours straight without anybody, you know, interrupting him. And when he came out of there, he had his Bible straight. And he never looked back. From that point on, he became the force that held the line in the Canton Baptist Temple with the Word of God. Well, about the same time, we brought up a guy, they brought up a guy and hired another music man, and he was out of Bob Jones University. His name was Bob Johnson. And Bob Johnson was a nice guy, and I like Bob, uh, but Bob Johnson didn't uh, care about the King James Bible. He, was, he had got his uh, degree from Bob Jones University. They took his Bible from him, and he was an NIV man all the way. So the rivalry was going on when I was there in that own church. Bob Johnson wanted to uh, get a feather in his cap. And the way you get a feather in your cap with any of these schools is when all these kids are coming up and growing up, then you get them, send them down to Bob Jones University, and then they do you favors back. After about five or six years of doing that, guess how they rewarded him? Anybody want to raise your hand and tell you? Honorary doctor. Honorary doctor degree, yeah. Who wouldn't want that, see? Yeah, after about four or five years of putting about four or five hundred kids down there, then they bring him down there for a graduation and they make him an honorary doctor. Now it's Dr. Bob Johnson, see? That sound nice? Dr. Bob Johnson. And, of course, uh, they, uh, there was always a clash there. Mel held the book. He, raised a, he was in a college class. He had the young minds of that church, and he really just really uh, taught the Word of God, made no apologies for it. Mel was very dynamic. He was very strong. He was very forceful. Bob was kind of underneath the radar type of guy. And uh, he was kind of a, you know... Uh, little wishy-washy guy, and he'd always try to work the angles, you know, and he'd set things up and do things like that. Him and Mel never got along. They pretended to get along, but they didn't get along. And, uh, you know, it was a thing where that was, a, you know, Bob Johnson's greatest day. Bob Johnson's greatest day is the day Mel Sabaka resigned and said, I'm going to New York to start a church, because then he thought he was free from him, see? But what Bob Johnson had forgotten was that Mel had been there for 30-some years and trained a lot of people who believed the Bible just like Mel did, so you're never free from him, see? Now, the postscript of the story is this. Bob Johnson worked all those years for Bob Jones University to get that honorary doctor degree, see? And then one time, just one time is all it took. Bob Jones University was such a strong, dominant force in your life that controlled you. One time, one time, I just said one time. Did you not hear me? One time, he stepped out of line and had a Southern Baptist come into the church and Bob Jones pulled back his doctor degree and took it away from him. Okay? <laughs> Powers that be. You don't ever sell your soul to those kind of people. Not you ever sell your soul to those kind of people. They're always going to be around. You just take them on. Dallas Billington. Now there's another good one. 
You ever get a chance to buy a book online, you can probably buy it for a buck. God is Real. They put it out in about 1975, 76, right after Dallas Billington died. Dallas Billington was the pastor of the Akron Baptist Temple. 10,000 people in Sunday school. Never went to Bible college a day in his life. The book God is Real is such an impacting book in my life. When I first read it, it, it changed my whole perspective of how a man built a church with just a relationship with God. He was an old backwood country boy from Kentucky that came across the Ohio River and up into the Ohio Valley and came into Akron. Uh, Akron back that point was a great rubber town. B.F. Goodrich, uh, Big Blimps all come from Akron. It was the rubber capital of the world. And uh, he went in there and built a church. Canton was the steel capital of the world. See, that's where I'm from. And uh, where Harold Henniger came in and capitalized on at the end of World War II when all the steel was being made with all the people that had come up to work. My mom and dad moved from Maryland uh, all the way to Canton, Ohio, just so they could get jobs in the steel mills because uh, during the war, because that's where the jobs were. So these towns filled up. When they filled up, God gave them pastors to build churches. So Akron, with all the rubber, got Dallas Billington. Canton, with all the steel, got the Canton Baptist Temple. And that's how those things worked back then, see? My dad worked in a Republic Steel for 36 years before he died of lung cancer. My mom worked at Timkins during the war and made uh, ammunition at Timken Roller Barrett Company during the war. And uh, they both worked in a steel mill. And that's where... They started going to church, and, you know, the rest is history. And uh, so you got, the, uh, you got Dallas Billington. He dies about 1975, 1976. And again, here's another story. Dallas Billington believed the Word of God, King James Bible, the Word of God from cover to cover. He didn't fall for anybody. Ah, when he died, guess who took over his church? His son took over the church. Charles Billington. Charles Billington, maybe the old man believed it, but the old boy didn't. The old young man had got out of Bible college now and been educated out of it. As soon as the old man died, the young boy took it over. And boy, the first thing they did, five years later, they didn't believe the Word of God was anymore. You know what those churches are? Canton Baptist Temple, when I was there, was running 5,000 people. It was running 980 that Sunday I was there. Akron Baptist Temple was running over 10,000. They're down about 2,200. That's the way it all went. All these big churches, down, man, when it, when, the, when it all happened. They just couldn't go on. Well, we got Beecham Vick. He's another great guy that is, is deals with the uh, very important in the Baptist Bible Fellowship and, and with Frank Norris. Uh, you got Lee Robinson, who also came out of the J. Frank Norris crowd that started the college and the church down in, in Tennessee. Uh, we talked about John Rawlings. Harold Seitler. A uh, great preacher down in Greenville, South Carolina. Howard Sears, uh, also in Carolina. Victor Sears, his brother. The great Southern Baptist who came out of it, R.G. Lee. I've heard all these guys preach. These guys would take the paint off the wall, man. I mean, that's where these guys were. Uh, you got guys like Reg Woodworth, Neil, uh, Noel Smith, Oliver B. Green. Oliver B. Green was a, was a great, 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 great preacher. Now, all these guys are the transitional guys. These are the guys that bring you up to my era. They're all dead now. They all died about 20, 25 years ago. But they were the transitional guys that began to waver and began to, many of them started believing the book and wound up not believing the book. And then next time we get together... I'm going to bring you through and show you, and these will be names that everybody probably understands and knows who they are at this point. I'm going to show you the next two generations of preachers that these guys, when they end of their life, denied the Word of God. And this thing is moving in the lay of the sea and movement. 
I'm going to show you the next couple of generations of preachers and see what they believe, and you'll get a better understanding of where this thing is falling apart. So we'll hold up there tonight. I got a few minutes here. Any questions? Um, I mean, you still got, yeah. Was some of these guys, the ones by Jay Frank, uh, did they go to his school? Yes. Here's what happened with the J. Frank Norris, just so you put it in perspective. J. Frank Norris split from the Southern Baptist Convention. He took a lot of young preacher boys with him. And, and he kept his church down in Dallas, Fort Worth. And at this time, uh, he also started a church up in uh, Detroit, Michigan. And J. Frank Norris is traveling. But these church, both these churches are running about two or 3,000 people in each church. He's traveling back and forth between these churches, preaching, pastoring both churches, which is not a good idea. I got to tell you, I'm just being honest with you. These guys were great, powerful guys for God, but they also had their own problems. J. Frank Norris was, was an egotist beyond, beyond belief. And the more power he got, the more problems he got. But, I mean, I'm just telling you the bottom line. I mean, God used him, but any man, every man's got quirks. I mean, they just, when God, when he's that kind of guy and he's out in front of the whole world and God's using him to take on the whole Southern Baptist Convention and, and everybody in town. I mean, when J. Frank Norris went to town, I mean, there the whole town wanted to kill him. I mean, they burned churches down. I mean, they wanted to kill him. I mean, they hated him. The newspapers, I mean, he'd go into town and he'd talk about, he'd preach about the mayor and his affairs, his drunken, he'd talk about the sheriff, he'd talk, he'd, he'd name names, give out telephone numbers, man. <laughs> I mean, it's a wonder he lasted as long as he did. But uh, he come to the point where uh, once he busted with them and he became of it, he became pretty eccentric and pretty demanding. And he was a hard guy to work for. He really was. And you got to understand, this is the way it is. I mean, a guy, God can't make one guy to take on the world to be a cream puff. He's going to have some problems someplace in his life. It's just the way it is. You you know, he's not the $6 billion man. And what happened was, is once he was pastoring both churches, he put an associate pastor, a Beecham Vic, and he put him as a pastor up in Detroit. And he stayed down in Texas. Well, what happened was, is that him and Beach and Vic got in a knockdown, drag out political fight over power. J. Frank Norris, this is later on in his life now, right before he dies, and he had, he'd come to the point where he'd fought most of his battles, and now he's turned his battles toward his own people. And this is all in God's design, by the way. So they get into a big knockdown, drag out, and it's a mess. It's a bloody mess. And what happens then is it splits again, see? And the Temple Baptist Church up in uh, with Beecham Vic, uh, they become their own fundamentalist group. J. Frank Norris stayed down in Texas and stays with his group. The group up in, in Detroit are all based with preachers down here in Missouri. So they form the Baptist Bible Fellowship in Springfield, Missouri, which is down there today. See, And so that's where their school came in. And then it started the process all over again. J. Frank Norris fades off the scene. He dies about three or four years later. It all falls apart when he's gone because he was the piston and the engine and the crankshaft and the spark plugs for the whole thing. When he's gone, it just was finished. But Beecham Vic took the thing, developed it, got the Baptist Bible Fellowship going. It started out as a good thing. All these preachers now that came out with Norris went with Vic, Henniger, Rawlings, Wendell Zimmerman. They all went with Vic because they knew 
but this time the old man was nuts and they weren't going to follow him. It was suicide. So they all split with him. They all started churches, Rodney Bell, all these guys. They started churches, and this was the birth of what we know as the fundamentalist movement. And in that movement came Canton Baptist Temple, where I came from, okay? all the Baptist Temple churches, where you find them across the country. Uh, if it's called you know, Kansas City Baptist Temple, Canton Baptist Temple, Landmark Baptist Temple, they'll always have Baptist Temple with them, I guarantee you. They're out of Norris's crowd. And uh, their they're, uh, Norris's church people are just gone now. They're nowhere around anymore. Uh, I mean, they may be, but they're not powerful anymore. Baptist Bible Fellowship has split four or five times, and now we've got West Side Fellowship, East Side, North Side by West Side by East West Side. We've got uh, Tennessee Temple crowd. They're all, they're all uh, Lynchburg crowd. They are all split-offs of the original Baptist Bible Fellowship that started originally with Norris, split with Beach and Vic, and then scattered everywhere. So what God did was, he, it's like a pool table, what he did. He took all of his people, all of his things, put, racked them up on the table, took J. Frank Norris, put them down there, and Beach and Vic was the eight ball in the front, and scattered them everywhere. That's how he started his churches. So that's how it works. And out of that now, I am the, I'm the second generation out of that. See? My generation was 1950. That make me the first generation after it. I'm, I'm the first generation after that crowd. And that's why my generation uh, is the last generation who sees it and understands it. The next generation coming out has no clue of it. Now that's the problem, and that's what we'll get into. Every generation after my generation, and most of my generation went south with it because they all went after the NIV or went, and followed it, see? But there's very few guys in my generation that did not do that. And so, but once my generation is gone, then, and I'm 60 years old, so my generation is working its way out here. The next generation has no clue. And this is the preachers that you're seeing today. These will be the Jerry Johnstons, you see. This will be the, uh, uh, the guys that uh, are running the, the Phil Hoppers. This will, be the, this will be the guys that are starting the big mega churches that don't have a clue about anything about the Bible or the Word of God or where they got it. All they know is, I got this big facility, we got Starbucks, we got McDonald's, we got a playground, we got all this thing, and, you know, I guess, I don't know where I fit in. Oh, I know, I'll be the pastor. What do you do? I'll be Ronald McDonald. I'll just have a fun time with everything, see? And that's where it's at. They don't have an understanding of where it came from. That's why I feel sorry for these guys out today, and I feel sorry for a lot of you, people in our church. That's why people... That there's no commitment to Christianity, and our church is better than most, and we have a lot of people committed. But the only reason you're committed is because God, you know, brought me through that. And, and I, otherwise, I'd be a big, big mess like everybody else. I mean, um, God just knows where he's got junkyard dogs, where he just keeps them on short chains. And, uh, you know, that's my calling in life. My calling in life is never to be sophisticated. Giving me a doctor's degree is like eating whipped cream on an onion. <laughs> Couldn't press me with it for five minutes. You know, guy says, I got a doctor degree. So what? I can put your eye out at 300 yards with an M1 grand. What do you want to talk about next? <laughs> Push comes to shove. What do you think is going to, which, which one's better, really? So, do you have a question, Jimmy? Well, when you were, when you were back when you were preaching, and now, I mean, 20 years later, these guys, I got some guys' names in my Bible that preach with you at Bible conferences. Okay. Do you know where they're at now? Who? Uh... Rod Petty. 
Who? Rod Petty. Rod Petty. Rod Petty never preached for me at a Bible conference. I don't know Rod Petty. They're both dead. Gary Sauer. I don't know what happened to him. Uh, Vern McQueen. He's probably dead too. He was old back then. If he's not, he needs to be killed. <laughs> Who? Jeff Cradilla. Don't know him. What Bible conference were you going to? Don Steady. Don't know him. These are all guys that signed the Bible at the same time at Bible conferences when we were there. Oh. Well, well okay. Well, okay. Huh? Mike Metzger. Mike Metzger is pastoring up in New York. He took Mel's church up Steve in Staten Sturgeon. Island. Huh? Steve Sturgeon. Steve Sturgeon, last I heard, uh, he was the... Uh, he was out in Mont Bozeman, Montana, or not Bozeman. Where did Dean McQuillan go in Montana? Dillon, Dillon. Dillon, Montana. He was out in Dillon, Montana. I don't know what's going on with him now. He was a weird dude too. Mark Grennan. Mark Grennan was a, is now a, last I heard was a missionary to Africa. Don Curran. Curran. Don Curran. Don't know where he's at. And David Sabaka. Dave Sabaka. Or Danny Sabaka? David. David Sabaka was Mel's nephew uh, through Mel's brother. How do you know him? He'd never been out here. Yeah, he was. He was at, he was at St. Joe's on McDonald's farm. No, David's, Danny Sabaka was there. Never Dave Sabaka. Dave signed the Bible. That's the only place I got it from. Huh? That's the only place I got it from. Okay, well, I don't. I, he's in Ohio. He's back in Canton. He's still at the church back there. David Butts. David who? Butts. David Butts. I think he was shot in the rear end in the war. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck Dave. Who? Chuck Dave. Are you talking about the Bible conferences that we had over there, like the pastors' conferences? From eighty-nine to ninety-one. At, not at Old McDonald's Farm, at the church. These guys, these guys were never at Moe McDonald's farm. None of these guys. He said both. I'm saying both. no. They were not at the both. <laughs> they were at the. They may have been at the church, but they never at the Bible conference. Not my Bible conference. George Grace. George Grace. Yeah, he's he's pretty much charismatic now. I know where Buddy Cargo's at. Buddy Cargo's in heaven. And then Jim, you heard this. You were gone, but Jim died. Jim. Uh, Jim White. Jim White dead now. Yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering because I had I got Wendell Zimmerman's signature in here. Yeah. And at the same time when these guys came through and they preached at the temple or at Bible conferences. Yeah. But most of those guys were not at the Bible conference. But we had the same guys. We had Sabaka, we had George Grace, and then we had Jim White, and we had those guys. All right. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for tonight. Pray you'll bless us as take us as we can learn from this and grow from it. We do thank you.